0: to this week's edition of our podcast, Crikey Calling. This week we have a special treat for you because we normally talk to Bernard Keane, but he's been boned today, and instead we will be speaking with Crikey's writer-at-large, Guy Rundle, who has come back from London to report on the Australian election campaign. So welcome, Guy.
1: Oh, Thank you very much, Cathy. Good to be
0: here. And what's it been like hitting the campaign trail here?
1: Well, it's been pretty weird because uh, I hit the trail as soon as I... Uh as soon as I came into town, so straight from London into West Sydney, which is something of a culture shock, perhaps not as much of a culture shock as some people think, but um, I hit West, West Sydney first, really, because that's where the election is going to be decided, as they always say, and, and some things are true, even though what everybody says is true is true. It's, it's about half a dozen seats there, and... Um, that are all on a knife edge, a lot of them controlled by Labor, that if they go in a block uh, will definitely mean that the Coalition has won, and if Labor can keep them, uh, they're in with a fighting chance.
0: Mm. I'm interested, Guy, where you just said it was actually not such a culture shock going from London to Western Sydney. Now, were you joking, or did you mean that?
1: No, because, because Western Sydney is the same as, say, the east end of London or the south of London. They're both vast spaces that have grown up around cities where you have a part of the city that is, if you like, celebrated, high capital, famous, that sort of thing in Sydney, that's the harbour, of course, in London that's the you know part of the river, um, the centre of London, the city, the Tower of London, the Houses of Parliament, that sort of area. Um, the people who live in the vast areas of those cities that aren't that part of that those cities, are usually deprived. They're usually deprived of services, they're deprived of good architecture, they're deprived of capital and jobs and things like that. And if you're in a situation where you live in those areas, you're in a sort of city where a lot of the capital, a lot of the opportunity is being sucked from those big areas right into the centre. And that's really what's happening with West Sydney, you know. West Sydney is this enormous sprawl whereby a city that was round a harbour has sprawled out to the edge of the Blue Mountains to places like Blacktown and Parramatta, which were once obviously separate cities in their own right. Um, And the great disadvantage of that is that you're then part of this large city, but you lack a certain autonomy uh, in terms of what you can do with your city, in terms of what you can attract, in terms of industry and that sort of thing. And what really interested me was the way in which people have accepted that and people have just seen it as some sort of inevitable process that you should have this enormous, sprawling off of a thing called Sydney whereby you have parts of it 40 kilometres out, very little relationship to the centre of the city and deprived by that relationship and really sort of... Uh, underdeveloped, you know, nothing like the sort of concentration of capital or development you really should have in a place like that.
0: Mm. Presumably, though, in defence of Western Sydney, what it does offer is a certain level of jobs, which if you wanted to live in regional towns or towns that still Mm. have some autonomy, like you just referred to, Mm. that you perhaps couldn't make anything like the money or couldn't find a job at all. I mean, these people aren't stupid, so why do, in fact, millions of people live in...
1: Oh, I'm not, I'm, look, I'm not against the people of West Sydney at all. Um, no, you live in cities because cities are where the opportunity is. That's where you grow up. That's where you happen to be. whats What's been an invisible process is that the development that should have occurred in places like Blacktown hasn't occurred. But because it's ha- it, because it's failed to happen for so long... Everybody has just started to accept that that's what Blacktown is. So you go out to Blacktown um, and, you know, the centre of Blacktown is a shopping mall, a couple of shopping malls, which have been plonked down into into what was once a reasonably well-designed and well-focused town. Um, uh, you know, the roads have been sort of carved up by these car parks and that sort of thing. And really... This is meant to be the fo- the focus of about a million, a million and a half people, and so it really should be a city in its own right. You know, it should have skyscrapers, it should have proper development, it should it should look like a Chinese city going up. It should be on an an entirely different scale to what it is, and that's the way in which you would then have jobs in Western Sydney, so people didn't have to commute an hour and a half into the centre and you know you'd have real jobs and and uh and that's where you'd have an economic focus so the money would be going back into western sydney and that sort of thing so it's it's not a criticism of the people of western sydney at all because people don't choose most of their environment they don't choose nobody put their hands up and said let's put west point shopping center down here and then sort of leave it to sort of half develop and half not you know um uh, in that way. And that's this weird politics you get whereby if you say anything like that, if you say, well, this place deserved more money than it got, deserved more development, deserved better planning, you're accused of being a snob. And and this seems to me to be one of the problems um, of it having been safe labor for so long and now being marginal. You've got this situation where it's been underdeveloped, I think, for so long and suddenly people are, are reasonably and righteously angry
0: about it. Well, but they're also more powerful in a way, aren't they, because they're in these seats that are now marginal. Mm. So suddenly politicians of all persuasions are hitting those seats mm. um, day after day. Is that, yeah. is that is there the potential that that can redress something of what you identified as these areas being disadvantaged or ignored, The fact the fact that they're now marginal, or do you think that's really unlikely to make any difference?
1: Well, you would hope it would make a difference, but... It's very hard to tell um, how it's very really hard to tell what sort of connect there is between the politics there and and the politics that people have the, pol- the things that people are talking about. When I went out there, when I was talking to people, what I was interested in was that looking at the discourse of Australian politics uh, before the the changeover back to Rudd, you had all this discussion of the NDIS and Gonski and that sort of thing. And it was like a language entirely conducted in terms of policy. It was a language um, in which everything was a sort of black box. If you didn't know what Gonski was, uh, you had no way of entering the debate. And, and, and it, it got to the point where Australian political discussion seemed to be just a matter of trading these acronyms back and forth Gonski and DIS. And of course, when you start to talk to people of Western Sydney, Everybody wants better schools, everybody wants better education, everybody wants better social services, but nobody knows what Gonski is, nobody knows what it means, it's just a language that that, um, the, that politicians were talking to, bureaucrats were talking to media commentators about, and nobody is actually talking um, to the people who want all these different sorts of things that are around the same topic. So. So one thing you get when you talk to people is they think that there's too much money going to private schools, you know, despite all these myths about um, uh, the idea that you can't touch private school funding. Uh, You know, this came up again and again and again, and it was vindicated. There's a poll saying that 60% of people think that private schools receive too much government funding. So there's a total disconnect there at the moment, and that's because of the atrophying of our political system, this this client-based stuff, the fact that the Labour Party has in many ways collapsed as an organisation, a grassroots organisation, in many of these areas where it could have, you know, commanded huge, huge sort of numbers 20, 30 years ago.
0: Do you think that symptom you just identified is maybe more acute or more noticeable in Western Sydney, where you've kind of spoken about there being this Mm. disconnect in some ways between the world that people live in and where everything seems to be Mm. happening? Or do you think what you're speaking about is a more general phenomenon, that a lot of people are not that engaged in the policy debate and are not Mm. really following what the politicians might be talking about? I mean, do you think the politicians are really failing to speak about issues in a way that people engage with?
1: Yeah, I absolutely think that that's right. I think policy has replaced politics in, in Australian life to a degree greater than almost anywhere I've seen, certainly to a greater degree than the United States, to a greater degree than Britain. Now, in some ways, that's good. I mean, the level of sophistication of discussion of policy options in Australia is very high um, in terms of, of, you know, people deciding between different options about tax and spending and that sort of thing. On the other hand, if you're out of that conversation, you're out of it entirely, because nobody's saying, talking about very basic things such as values like, how do we want to live? Do we want to have a society which is strongly collectively focused on development, infrastructure, social services, and, and that idea that we, we plan a future over the next 30 years and that involves a greater degree of tax gathering and we're doing this because we believe we're in this together? Or do we believe that we need a more individualistic society where you release the animal spirits of people to, to enrich themselves um, and that we shouldn't thereby have a plan. We, shouldn't, uh, we should have general frameworks, we should have lower taxes and let things go where they may. And that's not the sort of discussion we're having. We're not being offered those two fundamental ideas about social life. What we're being offered is um, uh, minor adjustments to policy, what the interest rate should be, what the GST rate should be, and those have become symbols of political differences, so those those are really technical you know issues if if the GST is ten percent or twelve percent that 's just an adjustment thing any party could do that within any sort of political framework. Um, but what we don 't have is the argument about whether you know on the one extreme the idea is that tax is just licensed theft by a government on the other extreme, the argument that taxes is by civilization and you can't develop a good society without them. And that's not the arguments we're having. And the only people I see talking about that, really, are the Greens. Um, The only person I've seen talking in that more general way while also connecting it to specifics has been Adam Bandt, uh, uh, trying to say, let's think about what sort of society we want. You know, with a mining boom, with all this money sort of coming in and then most of it going away again, um, let's talk about how we'd like to develop the country.
0: So are you saying, Guy, that it seems to you that in Australia policy has replaced politics and also policy has replaced ideology in our in the debate that politicians well, have about who should run the country?
1: Well, ideology is... I mean, politics is one version of an ideology. You know, politics. Politics in the sense of a general um, projection of how you would like society to be arranged comes from, you know, the ideology you follow, the philosophy Mm. you follow. And what you get in somewhere like the United States is you get all politics, Mm. all ideology and no policy. So rather than discussing two pretty similar models for, you know, a semi-social healthcare system uh, in rational terms in America, obviously it's that um, if you say that maybe the government should pay for a bit of healthcare, you're communist socialist fascist uh, and so forth and so on um so america has got this 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 other extreme whereby uh policy can't be discussed everything has to be done in terms of politics
0: do you think that real difference comes from in australia having you know a system that favors large parties and having two major parties that are actually very similar Mm -hmm. arguably and ideologically in fact not that different Does that account for why we're maybe not seeing a discussion of grand themes and a discussion of principle and a discussion of ideology? Because I would agree with you there, I don't think we are.
1: It's it's very difficult. What's happened in Australia is a very complex process, and I think it's this, that in the Hawke-Keating years, there was a transformation of class relationships in the way in which um, models of social welfare and funding and rewards were based. And that's in things like superannuation, home ownership, the value of homes and that sort of thing. One of the things that did was to create a very broad middle class, uh, if you like, in terms of people who own quite expensive houses. Um, And by that, I mean that, you know, this is um, working class and lower middle class people right up to, to quite prosperous upper middle class people all own or are paying off houses which by global standards are quite quite expensive and you know good luck to them having good houses but that creates a certain type of investment in a certain type of society and the second thing that does that is compulsory superannuation so really when you talk about working class in Australia you're talking about someone who might be working at a manual job but who owns a home uh, which is going up in value and has super accumulating within a super fund that is invested in turn in the stock market. So you'll have this enormous sort of um, uh, uh, ownership society. But what's happened in that process is that people who have been excluded from that have then been cut off decisively from the people they used to be connected to, which was the working class. So once you used to have broad working and lower middle class who owned modest homes, didn't have many savings. If, if they became unemployed or they became sick, they're, they're in trouble pretty quickly. Um, and, and so unemployment and those sorts of things were a matter of circumstance and, and, and periods of your life. And now you have a class uh, which is, you know, long-term unemployed, long-term on benefits or in low-waged work, uh, underserviced by training and education, but, because they're only about 15 to 20% of the population, they no longer have the heft they used to have. They don't have the political heft to really uh, change things. They could if they were, if things became more visible, if things became more conscious, uh, if they became more aware of their own class uh, identity, you know, you could then have, have, have new parties emerging to represent those groups. And that would change things. But at the moment, they're submerged into the Labour Party. But the Labour Party then is dominated by a property-owning class. And that property-owning class wants a whole set of uh, policies which uh, tend to be, you know, lower on certain types of taxation, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, has a certain sort of attitude towards industrial relations, which is leftish but not too far leftish. Um, and so on and so on. So it's, mm. it's the, the coalition sometimes going rightish on cultural matters and things like that, but by and large staying within that, that large framework. And once you get that, you then get a politics which becomes a sort of proxy war by policy so that uh, a change of uh, 2% in the GST is not a technical change, it's some sort of clash of civilizations. And then what you're seeing now is that that runs out, that that creates a vacuum, and what do we then talk about? We talk about should Tony Abbott say that that Fiona Scott is hot or not? Mm. You know, once you get that vacuum, then you get silliness going on, and that's what we've reached by day 10 of the election. Mm. We've reached a point of of, that. I suppose
0: there's evidence for what you said about the rise of a certain type of society which has a very broad middle class, Mm. there's evidence for that in the fact that you were in Western Sydney at all, Mm. because traditionally we might look at that part of Mm. the world and think it would be Labour and it would be safe Labour, and the whole reason you've gone there is because it's not, because areas like that can't assume that that they will, that the Labour Party will win the votes. What's your impression from going there, Guy, about what's making people tick, what's making voters tick in the Western Sydney electorates you went to? What are they interested in? What are they worried about?
1: Well, this is the the interesting question. They had a very the people I talked to had a reasonably mellow sort of view of things. I thought, in terms of they they want uh, they want better education, they want better services. um, That's what they want. You know, they wanted better transport. A lot of these issues were state issues, really. Um, A lot of what arose for them was a product of underdevelopment of, of, of. Western Sydney, which can be addressed at a distance by a federal government in terms of grants, but which really has to be a you know, a, a, state, a state government development. I mean, the, the federal government now has this major cities infrastructure unit because I think at some point federal politicians got so frustrated with a lack of good development you know, um, by state governments that they put this in. But that still isn't a way of really addressing mm. that. And, and what I find interesting is, is, is still this. You know, you've got close to really twenty percent youth unemployment in Western Sydney. That's pretty high. Um, and, you know, in some areas it's probably up to twenty five percent. Yet there still wasn't a really angry discussion about that. There was still, there still wasn't a sense yet that that this area was being done down a bit. I mean, these are incredibly diverse areas. You know, a place like Greenway, a seat like Greenway, you could cover the whole Australian election just in Greenway because it covers Blacktown and then it goes out to, to the edge of the Blue Mountains in a way and then it goes up to places like the Ponds, you know, these new suburbs with these sort of large McMansion houses basically built from, from one edge of the block to the next um, with an average house price of $600,000. So... So that's all in one electorate, uh, and that's really the whole scope, you know, of Australian society in many ways, give or take. Mm,
0: it's interesting that you've described a situation, to those of us who aren't familiar or don't live in Western Sydney, that you would think a, a, a natural reaction to it from the people who live there might be some kind of a sense of disenfranchisement mm. or anger or something like that, but you've said it seems to be more like resignation, like people are to a degree accepting that they don't have certain mm. services and facilities. I think the
1: general rule of politics is that is that it's 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 rare that outrage itself or dissatisfaction, without a vessel for it, without some sort of framework or organisation, um, will will have, find an expression. And the problem at the moment is that there used to be an, a, a mode of expression for that, and it was called the Labour Party, and it no longer is. And so the Labour Party has become a process of disappointment management i mean that's what the labor party specializes in reducing expectations in key areas and am not staying in power i mean what western sydney needs is a western sydney party it's someone needs to organize a party that really only contests about eight electorates and mixes a mix of left and right populism and basically just uh just tries to get you know five to seven percent of the vote which would be enough in a preferential system for them to just start wheeling and dealing um, with Liberal or Labour to get a better deal for that region, you know. And if you had a party like that, suddenly I think people would see a place to focus their their dissatisfaction on, and that party would propagandise about that dissatisfaction, and that produces something. So something goes from vague resignation to active, from passive to active as a political process. And that's... I mean, that's the gap we see at the moment in urban Australia, whereas in rural Australia, they've had that for so long that they are now starting to stand up. So that's why you've got the Cater Party. That's why you've got independence. Um, That's why what's really happening in rural Australia is the breakup of the old rural right. You know The National Party is facing extinction um, because people are so dissatisfied with the idea that they are represented by the National Party which is really just doing the Liberals' handiwork for them. And the divide between uh, the fortunes of rural conservatives and urban conservatives has become so wide now that it can't be ignored. Um, You see that especially with the division between mining and farming, you know, which used to be blood brothers, you know, these were the primary producers, but now you've got a situation where farming is a low profit uh, or non-profit activity um, you know like avant-garde theatre or something and mining involves taking the whole of a mountaintop off or digging up the whole of a, of a region that used to produce you know rich black soil farms so you've got these two fundamental economic forces coming into contradiction and mining isn't really a rural community activity it's it's just a few very small number of people blowing stuff up and then digging it up. And you don't need communities for that. You know, that's why you have fly in, fly out. So that's what people are starting to... to, That's what the rural Australia is really starting to stand up against. And that'll happen in urban Australia, but it's one click behind it at the moment. There's still... The Labour Party still has that control um, of those sorts of areas, and the Greens are culturally not going to get more than a a sort of 10 to 12%. They're just... The cultural differences between what the Greens look like and how such people think of themselves uh, is too wide, and that's why you need a specific interest party there.
0: Just back to the Labor Party before we get on to the Greens. Do you think the morphing of the working class into our large Australian middle class, which you spoke about Mm. before, is the inevitable result of that a Labor Party which has to engage in disappointment management on a grand scale. Is that why Labor Mm. is arguably failing to do what it's supposed to be doing because it doesn't have any kind of a cohesive or remotely cohesive working class to represent anymore? Or do you think the Labor Party has stuffed itself up?
1: Well, it it got itself into a position that it may or may not have um, anticipated with these processes of unleashing uh, house prices you know, sort of a long house price boom, compulsory super and that sort of thing, in that it created people as individual, um, prosperous, proprietorial people. And uh, perhaps when Keating and co. were doing that, they thought that people would stick with the Labour Party out of gratitude or sort of loyalty or a sense that that was that Labour had done this and was managing this. But they haven't. People just become sort of... Um, uh, individual bidders for the vote. What have you done for me lately? Now, the interesting thing is that the liberal block of voters hasn't really broken up in that way. The the bourgeoisie is still the bourgeoisie uh, and that hasn't changed. The Greens block of sort of cultural workers, policy workers, that sort of thing, that's fairly solid too. You know, there's all this prognostication about whether the Greens vote goes down to seven or up to... 11, it's always hanging around about 9%, and that's really the number of people who are in that social class, People take. The one party which has really dissolved its own social class quite effectively, its own mass social class, is the Labour Party. So that's why it looks like it's having to run on the spot. It has to manage two separate classes which now have quite different interests, and that is that prosperous middle class I'm talking about and um, a precarious class, if you like, people who are on part-time work, low-paid work, low-skilled work, benefits, dysfunctional families, that sort of thing. That, that 15% or so, uh, 20% or so of people whose votes Labour still needs, um, but whose interests are, are quite, quite different. And who, you know, to be fair, good people in Labour want to do something for, but now have the problem that the more they try and do something for those people, the more that prosperous middle class who would once have been united with that uh, that social class now feel it's taking away from them, it's taxing them, that sort of thing. So, so that division runs right down the middle of Labour um, and at its most extreme that means the Labour Party won't be able to continue in its current form because it was founded on a certain class relationship and that is expressed in the Harvester Judgment, for example, you know, where Justice Higgins talks about a living wage that gives people frugal comfort. in mean, there he then enumerates what frugal comfort means. And by our standards, it's absolute poverty, you know. But it's, by the standards of 1907, it was a modest uh, working-class, uh, safe, warm home with enough food, enough this, enough that. Um, and that at that stage, could appeal to 50%, 60% of the population as something they would aspire to and want and, and was the constituents of a happy life. Now, Labour has to deal with, with people, that, you know, who want a three-car garage with a speedboat in it um, and, and plasma and NBN, and once again, you know, good luck to them in many ways in a, in a prosperous, um, pleasure-filled life. But at the other extreme, there are people who have much more basic needs, and... Um, And that's that's an enormous social division Mm -hmm. for one party to cover.
0: Guy, you've talked about the yawning emptiness at the heart of Labor, and I think quite (laughs) quite a lot of our readers, our our listeners might agree with you on that. But I want to ask you about the Coalition.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: We can talk about what we see as the failures of Labor, but they're coming off two terms, winning two terms federally. Mm -hmm. Um, It looks like perhaps the most likely result is the Coalition will Mm -hmm. win this election. But if you look at the polls, not by a landslide, and the, the broader point I would ask you about is... Is the coalition suffering from a lack of courage or a lack of standing for something? I mean, in terms of the reforms, they say, elect us, we will do mm. this. They're not actually, most of them, big reforms. And even if you look at things like, well, all right, when would you bring the budget back to surplus? Yeah. It's something they, they just don't even have an answer. I'm wondering, is there a, a laziness or a lack of courage from the coalition in terms of working out who they are in the post-John Howard years? Because you could make a case that it's not actually a particularly easy time for the coalition either, a- and they have a leader who's fairly unpopular.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're right about that. We can exaggerate, you know, the difficulties Labor has. I mean, the, you know, the point is that that. Sorry, we'll get onto the coalition, but but preface it. You know, we had this point where Labor got down to 29% primary vote and has now been bumped up again by, you know, putting in power a man that everybody in the Labor Party hates that people outside the Labour Party quite like. And that's pretty significant. When a party has to do that to survive, um, you know, it's in a reasonable amount of trouble. OK, the Libs, however, haven't been able to capitalise on that, except for the fact that we know that if Malcolm Turnbull was leader, this election would be all over uh, in a country mile. You know, that the Mal- th- this would unquestionably be... Uh, of the coalition's vote and what that indicates to me is that what the Australian people want at the moment is a you know that broad middle class is a reasonably center to mildly center right sort of economic government but also a socially modernizing one they want when Malcolm Turnbull talks about the NBN or about climate change or any of those things they want a party in the spot where the Liberal Party is that has gone beyond the culture wars, has gone beyond um, the Howard stuff about political correctness and resentment and that sort of thing, and is getting on with the job of modernising Australian life, uh, and that means, you know, managing a, a market-based society with some stopgaps and, uh, and safety nets, uh, but also, you know, getting us forward on things like same-sex marriage, which seems to have a lot of support. And, um,
0: is there a party overseas that you would say has more deftly occupied that place in the political spectrum where you seem to be saying... Oh, I yeah, well, it's Obama. I mean, that right.
1: is, when you look at... I mean, even though the Democrats are on the left of the American political spectrum, you know, politically, that's exactly where they are. You know, Turnbull, Malcolm Turnbull is just a, a less charismatic version of Obama. You know, that... That's the sort of figure people want, you know, someone who's not ideological, who's sensible and is pushing things forward, moving things forward, is a bit political but not really, is, a, is you know, a, a good and sensible manager. Now, what they've got at the moment is Tony Abbott as this leader who is then projecting back onto the Liberals um, and, and, you know, drawing out the worst of the sort of conservative side of the Liberal Party, um, a sort of old... Uh, what would you call it? Chamber of Commerce, um, liberalism, and also sort the of United Australia Party, business oriented um, fusion of reasonably right wing economic politics and reasonably conservative social politics, with the conservative social politics meant to hold things together as the right wing economic politics. Mm tear everything apart. And, and of course
0: it's not working, insofar no. as while they're you know, just ahead in the polls, I mean, yeah. Abbott's numbers have never been good, and it would seem, you know, would it be fair to say that the reason the Liberals are ahead in the polls is more of a reaction against Labour than it is a particular fondness yeah. for what the Liberals are proposing?
1: Yeah, I mean, yes, I think it's like, you know, um, uh, people, have, people have said we really don't like Labour much uh, for a whole lot of reasons. Um, now that Kevin Rudd's back, we'll give you another chance because we liked him, and we thought he was talking directly to us about the things that mattered about our lives. And he was a, you know, a non. He's he's doing this anti-politics uh, and that sort of thing. But by and large, there's still a small majority who would prefer to throw them out. But when you think about it, 52-48 on two-party preferred. I mean, that's not a four percent lead because it's a two-party refer. It's a 2% lead. It's one person in a group of 25 that you have to persuade on the right-wing side of politics to come back to Labour. And, and, you know, you've won it. So, and as we can see, you know, under pressure, what's happening is what Labour hoped would happen. Tony Abbott is coming apart. The rivets are flying off. The sprockets going. So we spent the last three days talking about some dumb comment he made Because he couldn't help himself. He cannot restrain himself. He's just this, um, you know, mix of, of, you know, antediluvian attitudes and neuroses and that sort of thing, sort of taped together with with Gaffer. Um, And as soon as the pressure starts to build, Tony Abbott always comes apart. It's it's absolutely, completely predictable.
0: Mm. Well, we're almost out of time. Um, Guy, do you want to tell us a bit about what you've got planned for the rest of the campaign in terms of who you're hoping to to go and join on the campaign? Yep, crime. absolutely.
1: I'm um, hoping to follow the leaders next week, uh, Mr Rudd and Mr Abbott, if they don't listen to this podcast. So <laughs> I'll play. Um, And then after that, I'm, I'm hoping to go up to Queensland and have a look at the Catter uh, the insurgency and uh, the Palmer United show on the Sunshine Coast and... Uh, Maybe come down to Indy and and uh, have a look at what's happening there with, Mirabella. with, with Sophie Mirabella mm-hmm. and Kathy McGowan. This, mm. this, you know, this is another interesting challenge in that you're getting to a point where there's not a safe rural seat for the major parties. Um, I I think Mirabella will probably get back in, but she's now got a fight on her hands when she, where she never did before. Mm. And you know, you'll have a very interesting Australian politics if. If not three or four, but ten or fifteen or twenty seats, start to become genuinely unpredictable. You know, this is this really is sort of uh, uh, the major parties talk about this being the most important election, bloody blah, bloody blah, blah, blah. Which of course it isn't, unless Abbott managed to get
0: control. Isn't of it. every election the most important?
1: Well, that's election. right. Yes, yeah. but you know sometimes they are. But this <laughs> one isn't, unless yeah. Abbott managed to get control of the Senate, yeah. which things change somewhat. But what's really what's really interesting is is the breakup of the the party system, this mm. gradual frack, fracking, the fracking of Australian politics. Oh, so, I'm, so I'll be looking at a lot of that.
0: Ah, well, in some ways, quite a disheartening conversation with uh, Crikey's writer at large, <laughs> Guy Rundle, today. I think we've decided everyone's, pretty much everyone's on the wrong track, Guy.
1: Um, well, there is disorder under heaven and the situation <laughs> is excellent. I mean, it's you always have to have this chaos before a new order arises.
0: Yeah. Well, there's plenty of um, guys writing on the Crikey website and there'll be plenty more in the weeks to come. And you can also find, if you go to our website, we've got various election pages up where you can see the lists of all the cash promises the parties have made and the savings promises, who's in the red and who's in the black, and it might surprise you what the results are. Guy, thanks a lot for joining us today.
1: Great. Thanks, Kathy. It was a lot of fun.
0: And I'm going to go and look up anti-deluvian in the dictionary, <laughs> which is a word that Guy used. I have no idea what it is. So thanks.
1: Cheers.